The reading today is from the book of 1 John, from chapter 1 and then continuing in chapter 5. One John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 to start with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have proclaimed, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And in continuing in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, He should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and gives us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Maggie, thank you very much. Uh, Let me add my welcome. Um, My name is Matt Fuller, uh, one of the staff here, ministers. Lovely to uh, see if you're visiting, if you're back from holidays, welcome back. You know, in in Paris, they call this weekend, La Rentrée. Everyone comes back uh, for the first weekend in September. Not quite the same here. Um, most of us have to work, unlike the Parisians. No, uh, the, um, uh, but uh, some returning from holiday, lovely to see. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you that we have here before us words of life. They speak of your son, ultimately the word of life. And so would we um, meet with him now? Would uh, he be the one who speaks to us? Would we hear his voice clearly so that we worship him? Not uh, a plastic or hollow version of him. We want to be those who see Jesus clearly, who honour him, who live for him. So would we hear you clearly this morning, we pray. Amen.
uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we went to visit my parents, and um, uh, they're outside of London, and the, there's a house in their street which is being renovated, as has been an understatement. Uh, it's sort of been knocked down and rebuilt, almost. Uh, extension on the front, extension on the back. They've moved all the rooms around downstairs. What was the kitchen is now the lounge, and so they've had to drill up all the floor and relay all the piping. And... Um, Massive building project. That's seven men on site. It's just a four-bedroom house. We have had seven men on site, uh, demolishing and reconstructing this thing. And um, to anyone who will speak to them, it's very obvious that there's a big project going on. They've said to my parents and others in the street, "This is amazing what we're doing. You know, when this is finished, <laughs> uh, you should do what we've done. It's much better way. We've orientated the house and the equity improvement." Be a magnificent investment. You should do the same too. And everyone's thought, oh, God, it's very impressive. It'll be the nicest house on the street. Um, and the problem is, uh, we visited them, my folks recently. They, these, uh, this couple, they've now spent 70000 on redoing the outside of their house. And they're broke. So the inside has got concrete floors, no electrics, no furniture. They can't live there, they can't sleep there, they can't eat there, they can't have anyone over there. So it's not really fit for purpose. They've got this magnificent exterior, best on the street, but it's a hollow house. Now, I have some sympathy with them, they've been slightly diddled by their builders, often the case. Um, But uh, really, to construct this facade that is very impressive, but to have a hollow house is quite frankly, let's be honest, useless. I had to move back in with parents. It's just a bit embarrassing in your 40s to have to do that when you've got two children as well. A hollow house is, well, it's not fit for purpose. It's a useless thing. Now this letter, 1 John, the Apostle John is writing this letter because some were offering to the Christians of the first century a hollow Jesus looked a bit like him. The veneer certainly had a Christian veneer to it. But actually the spirituality, the the form of Christianity they were offering was hollow. It was Jesus with nothing there. A Jesus that is fit for no purpose. An idolatrous version of Jesus. They're offering an improved version. Look, okay, what you learned from the apostles, that's okay, but we now offer a a greater depth of experience, higher experience, superior knowledge. The only problem was that they'd lost sight of the gospel. They'd, they had a hollow Jesus. There was nothing there, not fit for purpose. So this letter is written for two essential basic reasons. It's written to reassure believers. You know, what you believe from the beginning, that is true, and you really are Christians. So there's reassurance for believers. But then there's a rebuke to these idolaters who are creating this funny, hollow Jesus as well. That's what we had read. It comes out very clearly throughout the letter, but chapter 5 is a good example. Just flick back if, if you're not there. Maggie read the second uh, second reading, uh, helpfully or not, called Concluding Remarks. But you get these two purposes here. So chapter 5, verse 13 is not a bad summary of the letter. Here's the word of reassurance for believers. Chapter 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
I want you to know for certain that you have the genuine Jesus and you are genuine believers. You don't need to change anything. There's a word of reassurance. But in the very last verse of the letter, chapter 5, verse 21, here's the, the rebuke or the simple other side of it. Keep yourself from idols. That's not just a general sense. Don't let your career or your family or money become an idol. It's not really that in 1 John. It's keep yourself from a false Jesus. Don't drift, don't follow this hollowed out Jesus that looks okay from the exterior, but inside there's nothing. It's not fit for purpose. You just molded a Jesus to, that kind of makes life easy for you. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Those are the two real emphasis here. There's reassurance for believers. There's a rebuke to idolaters who have a funny, molded, plastic, hollow Jesus that they follow. Now just before we jump in, kind of a word of warning, I, I, I guess, or a word of preparedness for you. John, 1 John, it is a strong letter because it has a word of rebuke to it. I'm not sure it's the most popular little letter in the New Testament. Because he's a dogmatic sort of man, John. So just in, in, again in chapter 5, if you look down, when you get very near the end, how he concludes his letter, the dominant note of it is certainty. So chapter 5, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. Verse 19, we know that we're children of God. Verse 20, we know. John is strident in his certainty. And that isn't always popular today. I'm not sure he's going to be a popular man. In this. You know, I started thinking about 1 John back in June, and uh, I wobbled a couple of times. Is this really what we want to look at for a good chunk of the autumn term? Because it's going to make us a little bit uncomfortable, the, the stridency of his language. He's black and white. There's no grey, really, for John. Says we can, if you're a Christian, you can know for certain that what you believe is true and anything else is false. Now that's not popular. I got something through the post uh, this week um, from uh, from the, St Paul's Cathedral. There's a series of lectures on uh, this autumn, uh, the case for God. I'm not sure I'd recommend them in the slightest, really. Uh, the blurb has this as its opening gambit. Uh, Public arguments about God tend to happen between fundamentalists, both atheists and believers. The reality of faith is often subtler, more mysterious, more creative, more surprising than the arguments imply. Do you think John would say, Jesus isn't very subtle. He's not particularly mysterious. And I want you to know for certain this is the Christian faith. That is not. He's, he's quite black and white. People don't tend to like that in culture. So most people are quite happy with the sort of David Cameron faith. You remember the interviewed uh, back in the spring. Prime Minister, would you call yourself a Christian? Well, I think my faith is a bit like Magic FM in the Chilterns. Now, to my mind, you should be a bit embarrassed about admitting you like Magic FM, but that's... A, that's um, that's a, that's a matter of taste, if you like soft pop. Um, but um, Magic FM in the children's, in that it sort of fades in and out a little bit. 
When you're driving through the Cotswold roads, you're a bit far from a transmitter. It fades in and out. And my faith's a bit like that. It sort of fades in or out. And he's kind of saying, so look, if you're a Christian, I'm kind of like you, but but don't worry everyone else because I don't take it too seriously. So don't panic. Um, and that's that's okay, culturally. To which John would say, that's twaddle. That's nonsense. I want you to know for certain this is true and that is not. Just so we're clear. And you can have your magic FM in the children's drift in and drift out, Jesus, if you like. But let me tell you, that is an idol. Don't follow an idol. Okay. You see what I mean? He's quite stark in his language. It's not always comfortable for us. Just so we know. So John's going to say, keep yourself from idols. It's not a subtle message, but I want you to know with confidence... And as we work our way through the letter, it works on these two levels. Objectively, I want you to know that the gospel is true. But most of his time, subjectively actually, I want you to know that you are genuine Christians. I want you to know for certain. Now, as we begin, look, this is not an academic point, uh, uh, not an academic letter, it's deeply pastoral. So just so you know where we're going today, uh, the two things we're going to finish with here, his two applications uh, we'll get to eventually, you can have fellowship with the Father and the Son and you can share joy with others. Now what can be more practical than that? John is saying it's so important that you get this straight because it's the only way you can have a relationship with God, fellowship with him. And it's the only way that today, here and now, you'll have a genuine depth of joy. Now what do you want more than that? A relationship with God? Enjoy now. I mean, it can't be more practical than that. Keep yourself from idols. Follow the true Jesus. Know for certain. Let's work our way through it. The logic of the passage then of uh, chapter 1, 1 to 4, that's all we're looking at really today. Chapter 1, 1 to 4. It's quite simple, it seems to me. The apostles, they met the word of life, Jesus. And then secondly, they, the apostles, proclaim the words to us. And then there are two little implications. It's fairly straightforward. The apostles met the word of life, and the apostles proclaimed the word to us. Let's take those in turn. First then, the apostles met the word of life. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them again. It's quite similar to the beginning of John's gospel. Verse 1, that which we've heard, sorry, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, and testified to it. It's not quite the same as in the beginning God. Uh, in the beginning was the word, rather, and uh, the word was God, but quite similar language. And John wants to say right from the off, we met him. The one who before the creation of the world existed, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. We met him. And you see that he goes out of his way to say, we really did meet him. So verse 1, heard, seen, looked at, touched. Verse 2, seen. Verse 3, seen, heard. We've met him. His point is, this is a real bloke. There's a real historical man, Jesus Christ, God, come to earth. If you'd been there in the first century, you could have sat next to him at a desk. He could have had his face in your face on the tube. You could have stood behind him in a queue in Starbucks. It's a real, physical man. God, the one who was from the beginning, became a man. Now, 
Many of us would take that for granted. If you're a Christian, you'd probably take that for granted. Let me just rehearse or remind you that that is different from anything else you'll encounter in the religious sphere. I read uh, over the, one of the things I read over the summer was a, a history book by Tom Holland. I don't know if you've read any of his. He's an unusual guy in the sense he's a historian who writes bestsellers. Those two don't often come uh, hand in hand, although they should, but they don't often come uh, hand in hand together. And so he's an enormously popular historian. And his most recent book came out in the spring, uh, The Shadow of the Sword. He's a book investigating the, the origins of Islam. And it's interesting because he's a popular historian, but he writes what historians have been saying for about 150 years. There is no historical evidence for the rise of Islam. The earliest account you have of the life of Muhammad is 170 years after his death. That's a long time. But in perspective, can you imagine if we had no evidence of the life of George Washington until 1970? No one wrote anything about him. Nothing of his is recorded. And all of a sudden in 1970, just 170 years almost after his death, oh, there was this man called George Washington, was there? Yeah, he was quite important in the founding of the United States, was he? Not until 1970? Or equivalent, Horatio Nelson, nothing written about him. We know nothing about him until 1975, 170 years after his death. You'd be a bit suspicious, wouldn't you? Never heard of this man. Was he really important? in the history of the UK? 170 years, that's a long time. A long time afterwards. By contrast, the Gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, John. John here is saying, we saw, we heard, we touched. And all the Gospel accounts are roughly dated about 60 AD, within a generation of the life of Christ. Do you see that is completely different. Everyone's still alive in in the 60s AD. Completely different. That's why John is saying it's so important. This is historical. This is not like any other religious system. Why so important? Well, John is writing into a context where people were producing their own new mythical Jesuses. As I've said, these other Gospels you may have heard of, such as Thomas or Philip or Mary, they're all written about 170 years after the death of Jesus again. They're all written at the, kind of at the end of the second century. And John says, it did. no, anything that comes later is nonsense. This is what you believe. Listen to the people who saw, who heard, who touched. We were there. Look, all of us are different, but certainly for myself, when I became a Christian 20-odd years ago, I was a history undergraduate at university, and I looked at the evidence for Islam, for Christianity, for Mormonism, for one or two other uh, uh, slightly wackier things as well. And it was obvious to me, even before I became a Christian, there's only one that holds water historically. It's only Christianity has credible history behind it. John says, you do know that, don't you? Can I just remind you of that? We saw, we heard, we touched. Ignore everyone else. They don't know what they're talking about. The apostles met the word of life. 
Now, the secondly, this is really where he's going, I think, the main angle of, of this, uh, this little text at the beginning. The apostles proclaim the word to us. Do you see the step? There's Jesus, the apostles meet him, and then the apostles proclaim him to us. So verse 1, what do they do? We proclaim concerning the word of life. Verse 2, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Verse 3, we proclaim to you. Now some debate, the word of life, is that the gospel message or is it Jesus himself? I'm not sure there's a huge distinction. By the time you get to chapter 5 and and verse 11, John can happily say, God has given us eternal life, this life is in his Son. So I wouldn't uh, um, have a a large distinction here. But the the issue is, the, the, the apostles are saying, we proclaim him to you. Notice, John doesn't say, Jesus spoke, we met Jesus. Can I, can I suggest to you, he's quite interesting. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you want to listen to him? Should we, um, okay, here's what he said. How do you feel? You don't like that? Okay, let's change what he said. It's just a simple, straightforward proclamation. We proclaimed him. Uh, ten years ago, some some would know this from before. Ten years ago, I did a very embarrassingly short. Don't get, uh, don't think the wrong idea, wrong impression. I did a very short stint as an army chaplain, indeed. And uh, the army is a, an institution worthy of respect for many, many reasons. But one obvious thing about the army is they take rank very seriously. If your commanding officer tells you you do something, now I was at um, a military base, Sandhurst, where they train the uh, the officer cadets. Uh, the bloke in charge, you didn't call him a bloke, he was a two-star general, if that means anything to you, major general, so fairly senior in the army. And the way it would work, of course, would be this. He'd look out upon the uh, upon these his little minions, his little empire, and it kind of is that, and I uh, think they're not doing very well today. So he would issue an order. He'd issue an order to his, uh, work his way through, but let's keep it simple, to the majors who um, who trained the men. That was rubbish. Two more hours on the parade grounds tomorrow for everyone. We're going to improve our marching. So the general give an order to the majors. The majors say to the men, men, two more hours on the parade ground tomorrow. The general's ordered it. Now what doesn't happen, the majors don't say, look, the general's given an order, two more hours on the parade ground tomorrow, two extra hours. How do you feel about that? How do you feel? Does that work? Does that, do you feel that resonate with you? And the soldiers don't say, well, I like to think of general saying, have a lion tomorrow. That's how I like to think of my general. One who says to me, have a lion. Have a double portion of breakfast tomorrow and just roll over and read the newspapers. That's what, okay, well if that works for you, you do that. Anyone want to do the two extra hours on the parade ground? Oh, just the three of us then. Well, we'll all do our own little thing. As long as we're all happy with how we think of the general. Now, happily, the army doesn't work like that. Order, given. Major, proclaims it. Men, follow. It's kind of how it works. Or you're out. Now, what's, so what? The apostles here, they meet Jesus Christ. They proclaim him. They don't suggest. They don't say, does that Jesus work for you? Oh, you don't like what he said there. Well, that doesn't matter. You believe what you want. 
doesn't work like that. That's a hollow Jesus. That's an idle Jesus. That's a false Jesus. So do you see the implication? If Jesus Christ is a real historical man, God become man, which he is, you have to listen to him. And you have to do what he says. You can no longer say, I like to think of God as one who lets me. You can't do that. That's why it so matters that what we have here is the real Jesus Christ. A little while ago I read an interview with Dawn French. Funny woman, nice woman. Uh, it was about her role as the vicar of Dibley. Very annoying. Um, but anyway, you might think it's funny. But anyway, it's that sort of caricature of the Church of England, which is... True in parts. Um, but anyway, she, so the obvious point made is talking about the Vicar of Dibley. It was a Christmas special, so I can't remember. And uh, what do you believe? And so very honestly, she said, Dawn French, I think like a lot of people, I've got my own little version of God going on. That's a very honest comment. And very true. I, I like to think of God like this. I've got my own little version. I've created my own little he didn't say Jesus, but I've created my own little Jesus. And he sits there on my mental shelf, and he's not very demanding. And sometimes it's quite useful to look to him. It's quite nice to have him there, but he doesn't, doesn't tell me, he doesn't challenge me in any way, doesn't demand anything of me. And I've just got my own little version. You can't do that if Jesus Christ is a real historical figure, seen, heard, touched. You can't do that. You must listen, he's God. The apostles met the word of life, Jesus Christ. The apostles proclaim him to us. Two implications. The first is this then. We can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Fellowship with the Father and the Son. So uh, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that, here's the point, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowships with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. Fellowship is a sort of technical, slightly technical term. It doesn't just mean friendship. There's a greater depth to it than that. A sense of partnership or working together. Technically, you define it as shared company, shared beliefs, and shared project. It would be something like, not a bad definition. Shared company, shared beliefs, shared project. You need all of those things together. Because you share company with the people you work with. You sit at a desk, sit in an office. But you probably wouldn't say with many of them there's fellowship with them. You don't share beliefs. You don't share common hobbies or projects. You might have a common uh, belief with someone you meet as a one-off. You might go to a concert. D- different types of concerts. It could be LSO. It could be U2. It doesn't matter what it is. And you have companionship with the person you're sat next to. You never met them before. But they're good, aren't they? Yeah, really good. And you have, you have a moment. But there's nothing enduring about that. No, fellowship has its time together, its shared beliefs and shared purpose, project. So to to sort of go back to an illustration, the army has very strong fellowship to it. There's no great surprise to that. Because often you're with with a group of men, and particularly uh, when you're on deployment, you're in fairly cramped conditions and fairly boring conditions, and then it's all go and activity. But it's a fairly intense environment you're thrown together. And of course, often you have a shared value system. That's why you've joined the army. And certainly you have a shared project together. 
not dying, taking that base, defending this activity. It develops a fairly intense camaraderie. I'm, to my enormous surprise, I'm a, I'm a mildly cynical character, mildly. Um, but I am English. So you know. the, uh, uh, when I arrived at the army, it doesn't take very long until you're sort of caught up in this atmosphere. Only a few days in, I found myself, you, you do a training exercise, and you're doing sort of windmill high fives with people. You're going up to men you barely know and doing chest bumps with them. Now, to be honest, as a vicar, I don't often do chest bumps. And all of a sudden, you're there doing that. And you sort of got the, the, the Top Gun soundtrack blaring and sort of, you're sort of, because it, it develops this very quickly. We're on this together. We're doing this together. And that's, that's close. That's close to fellowship. John here is saying he has fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I delight to spend time with them. I share the same beliefs as the Father and the Son. I'm involved in the same activity. Why? Because I met him. I met Jesus Christ. He instructed me. He has saved me. And now I pass him on to you. Do you see verse 3? Look very carefully again. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with who? With us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let me say this carefully. This is the the key point of the whole passage. You cannot bypass the apostles to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. There is no way you can have fellowship with the Father and the Son, that is, be a Christian, apart from the testimony and proclamation of the apostles. One more time. You cannot have a relationship with God, know the Father and the Son, unless you do so by meeting them as they're presented in the Scriptures, the testimony of the apostles. You cannot. Now let me just try and bring out some implications, uh, uh, briefly positive and negative as well. Positively, we can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. That is an extraordinary thing. God himself says, yeah, come and share time with me. Let me share my ideas, my belief system with you. Uh, Let us engage, let me draw you into this project that I'm involved in, the salvation of people in this this world, the transformation of this world. Let me join with me in that project, will you? That's extraordinary. We can have fellowship, not just forgiveness, not just no, but fellowship. It's a strong word. We're partners, golly, with the living God. That's an amazing thing. But the negative thing here also, again, you can't have fellowship with God apart from what's written here. Implication. What we believe, it really matters. If you try and know God, apart from the testimony of the apostles, you'll follow an idol. Keep yourself from idols. John wants his readers to enjoy a really wonderful, 
depth of love and joy with the Father and the Son and amongst one another. He wants them to have the best relationships possible. So what does he do? He writes them a letter stuffed full of theology. What you believe, it really, really matters. Now, so, well, tragically, too often people try and take a shortcut. So dare I say, sadly, sadly in the Church of England, unity is sometimes, main, or too often maintained by ignoring what we believe. We just sort of all forget you know, yeah, these Anglican meetings, shh, don't talk about what we believe. If we talk about what we believe, we'll all fall out. Let's just pretend we don't believe anything and then we can get on. That's nonsense. It's not fellowship. It's not Christianity. Because you only have fellowship built upon the truth, the Apostles' Proclamation. Fellowship is not just sharing a cup of tea together. Anyone could do that. It's not uh, having a common experience together which some would seek to do. Let's just whip everyone, let's all gather together and whip ourselves up into a great high. Well, I'm not opposed to having great highs, but as long as they're driven by the truth. That's what John is saying. Otherwise, it's not fellowship. Just not. Just don't go to church, go to a tennis club. Come together, play the game and socialize afterwards. Don't let church become that. You come together, you play the game. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, let's be honest. And then we just have some um, chatting time and social time. It's not that. John says it's got to be built upon the truth. Well, it's just, there's no fellowship. There's no relationship with God. There's no depth of fellowship together. Keep yourself from idols. The only way to have fellowship is through the testimony and the proclamation of the apostles. Related to that, last thing. Last thing, here's the second reason that John says he writes, is so we can share joy with Others. So right at the end, verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. That means him and the other apostles. They were thrilled when people came together and had genuine fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now there's a footnote there. It could be your joy. That is possible. We write this to make your joy complete. And I don't want to be lazy, but I think in the end it's the same point. Uh, essentially. Deep-rooted joy in the Christian life is never experienced on your own. Only together. John's saying his joy, this side of heaven, can only be complete when others are flourishing. I think that's very interesting. Let me put it starkly. You and I, you and I will never know the greatest possible amount of joy this side of heaven unless we're concerned to see others flourish in the Christian life. You might think, I don't like that. I, just, I, don't, want to, I don't want my joy to be tied to the joy and, and, and of other people. I don't like that. I just like my own thing. I, if I tie myself to other people, well, I'm a bit exposed and vulnerable. I have to get involved in their mess. Yeah. Sorry, that's just how it is. That's how God has made us. God has made us a bit like being in a rowing boat, an Olympic rowing boat. You're in the eights. Men's eights, women's eights, whatever it is. Um, now you could just do your own thing. You know, everyone else is doing rowing one way. You just do your own thing. Well, that would be annoying to everyone else and wouldn't get you very far either. And outside the boat is no good if you're in fine health. How are you? Yeah, great. How's the rest of the team? They're sick in bed. But it doesn't matter because I'm all right. Well, you're not going to do so well in come race day. You need everyone to be flourishing. Only when you all flourish can you achieve the medal, the gold medal. 
if you're fit but everyone else is sick. And that's just the way God has designed the church. John says, my joy is only complete if you're flourishing, if you're believing the truth, if you're growing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And if you're not, I can't really be content. So just do you see that? If you are only concerned with yourself, you're, this is daft, okay, but your joyometer only goes from naught to three. That's all it goes. Three is your maximum score, you grumpy old thing. If you're concerned with seeing others flourish in the Christian life, you can go to ten. Oh, that's much nicer. Selfishness, well, it's self-defeating. Your joyometer only goes to three. Do you see that? John says he's very concerned with others. Now, many know that. And many here would know that. You've walked with others in the church through bleak seasons and seen them flourish the other end, and that's lovely to see. Or more particular to what John's talking about here. It just struck me, even as um, as look around when we were singing a little bit earlier. Let's let, let, just be honest. There are some here who have walked away from Jesus and followed a fake Jesus, an idolatrous Jesus, Jesus because... The Jesus you made yourself meant that you could, well, you could sexually do what you want. Or meant you could have a slightly different view of salvation, which made it easier for you. And others here have stood with you and prayed with you and spoken with you and wept with you. And now you're flourishing again. And there is enormous joy in that. There is enormous joy in seeing someone who's drifted away, come back and flourishing. More joy than, well, it's the only way to know a completeness of joy. Says John, that's what he's suggesting here. Wonderful. And I pray that we'd know more of that this year. A joy that runs more deeply. A joy of serving alongside one another, of caring deeply for one another's lives, of seeking to growing our knowledge of Christ together so our, our fellowship is deep and deeply rooted in the truth of the Bible. Yes, it needs time together. Yes, it needs activities together. Of course it needs those things as well. But fundamentally, our fellowship is driven by what we believe. And I'd long to see a greater joy within this congregation amongst us because we're involved in one another's lives and see them flourish. John says, look, children, keep yourself from idols. The only way to know Jesus Christ, have fellowship with him, is through the proclamation of these apostles. And through that you can know God, through encouraging one another in that, there's a depth of joy that is truly wonderful. So know for certain. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you that in your great kindness and wisdom you made sure that we have these, these, this witness, this testimony and this proclamation of the apostles so that we can know Jesus Christ and uh, know you, our Father. And so we pray that our fellowship here at Christchurch will be a deep one, a rich one, built upon that proclamation of the apostles, marked by a deep concern to see one another flourish in the faith. Would you keep us from our own little feeble hollow Jesuses
but would we know him through this proclamation and our fullness of joy to the honour of your name. Amen.